So I was talking to Damon uh-huh. and I said, uh, we're going to do a Disney podcast soon. And they're like, but I listened to your villains episode and that certainly almost sounded like a Disney podcast. Well, don't call us out like this, Damon. This is the thing. We were talking about things that we liked a lot. We're still going to talk about things that we like a lot. I don't actually have an argument for this. Well, the problem is that when you are a major corporation that touches just about every piece of media that's been consumed over the past 60 something years. And I mean, they really started buying everything in the last 10, right? right. Quadruply yeah. so now that they own Fox and Marvel. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Lucasfilm. So, and Lucasfilm. And Lucasfilm. Oh. Unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on the type of person you are, you just can't really avoid them. Yeah. Disney. We're here today to talk about Disney. Roddy is here. Hello. Mary Graham is here. Hi. And I'm Jeff, and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It is the Ferndale Library podcast, and of course, it's always brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And we're talking about Disney, and we're specifically going to talk about Disney films. Disney films specifically yes, mm-hmm. that we particularly love mm-hmm. and the, some that particularly uh, trouble us. Yes. Mary and, Graham put it perfectly. Would you repeat the thing that you've been saying? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the genesis of this, as it so often does, comes from me and Roddy having a conversation and then emailing Jeff and saying, you should probably put a microphone in front of us for this one. Exactly. Um, because I uh, recently went down to Orchestra Hall to see our fabulous DSO uh, do an, an evening of Disney music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had not realized before I got the tickets, uh, still a great night, still worth it, but th- that program was set and licensed by Disney. So the DSO, the music director, wasn't the one, you know, the pops director was not the one who selected oh. that music, was not the one, uh, they weren't local soloists, they were, you know, the, the soloists that were there were all um, amazing artists, but, you know, they they traveled doing this show. So wait a minute, wait a minute, a, a galactic corporation was heavy-handed about something? They were, Jeff, could you believe? <laughs> and this was also quite evident in the program for the evening, which was vastly 90s Disney renaissance, mostly Alan Menken, um, who I love, but did we need selections from five different Menken scores when we only had an hour, an hour and a half of music and Disney has a long history. And this occurred to me when they did some music from Cinderella, which is from the 1940s, and Mm -hmm. it was like this breath of fresh air because it, it just showed a beautiful contrast of this different era of of Disney music. And so I thought to myself, it seems like Disney as a corporation is really good at getting in the way of its own art, Mm -hmm. even art it has already made. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there at the DSO going, man, I love the DSO, but I'm, I'm having a lot of thoughts. And I think I'm justifying to myself, like, what are we doing on a library podcast talking about this? Well, we have Disney DVDs that you can come in and borrow. So oh, there's there's Disney, also, Disney like, books. There's, there's Di- so many books. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as a children's librarian, the number of times I get asked, do you have any Encanto books? Right. Mm-hmm. And we do, dear listeners. So if you need your Encanto books, come on down. <laughs> but, you know, this is something that touches just what we lend and what our Absolutely. what our patrons want mm-hmm. um Disney and getting in the way of its own art yeah yes. and what is this podcast if not a chance for me and roddy to do the literary criticism that we mostly had to leave behind when we graduated college yes <laughs> this is actually just an opportunity for roddy and mary graham to talk about atlantis the lost empire and the emperor's new group the emperor's new group <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we, so because yes. <laughs> something that I, that I was thinking, this is maybe a good starting point as I was, you know, sitting at the symphony, listening to this music and they were sort of playing clips like muted. Mm-hmm. They had a, a projector screen and they were playing clips without sound while the orchestra played, which I found a little distracting, but I thought to myself, I think that there are certainly Disney films that continue to sort of get airtime, continue mm-hmm. to get attention because the music is really good, and that's actually kind of about it. <laughs> I am unconvinced that The Little Mermaid would have that much staying power if it didn't have a Menken and Ashman soundtrack. I have theories. I so, want your theories. So here we are in 2022, mm-hmm. and the, uh, this renaissance era of Disney, 89 to 94, that gave us Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, it's kind of their their mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore. It's also the millennial Mount Rushmore because mm-hmm. that's 
what the millennials watched when they were six years old. Now they're all 36 and they have six year olds. And Disney is now doing live action remakes of all of those things. It's just this vicious Mobius snake eating its tail situation where it's being resold. Henceforth, the music was tying into the nostalgia of all the 36 year olds in your audience who Mm -hmm. had six year olds who are now about to go watch remakes live action of all that stuff. Right. And I think it's, I think that's really interesting, especially in the case of something like Aladdin, which they, they did selections of at this concert. And I sat there thinking to myself, like, I think I'd rather show my six-year-old kid Cinderella with Mm -hmm. all of its 1940s, you know, gender norms than I actually would Aladdin. I had to write Catherine Carver, if you're listening to this. She was my art history professor at Wayne State, um, both my freshman and my senior year. And for the class I took with her senior year, uh, we had to write a paper on Aladdin because it was a a medieval um, art history class. And that includes the Islamic Golden Age. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, well... We're going to watch Aladdin and I'm going to ruin it for you. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the semester, I was like, interesting. We'll see. And by the end of the semester, after I, I wrote that analysis paper of Aladdin, I was like, oh, she's right. So right. thanks, Dr. Carver. Because especially when you consider Aladdin came out in 92, which mm-hmm. was during the first Gulf conflict or yep. maybe the second Just one. After. I don't know. There's a lot of Gulf conflicts. Um, <laughs> and analyzing that film, I was like, my God. The Islamophobia, the general cultural insensitivity mm-hmm. to like a huge swath of people yeah. in North Africa, West Asia, South Asia. You mean that you can't just group all of those people and all of those cultural norms and into you can't, just one movie? You can't just put a building that looks like the Taj Mahal, which is in India, yes, uh, in a fictional city that sort of sounds like Baghdad, which is very much not in India, but yeah. is in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Can you believe? So, you know, I, I think that that's a, a, but but they just did a live action Aladdin. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think. I did not watch it. Neither did I. Right. Because I was like, you can't fix this one. Well, right. you know, for very odd reasons when I was younger, I never cared for Aladdin as much as seemingly every other child around me did. And I just never really knew how to put the words to it. Because like, sure, I love Leia Salonga, so do I love A Whole New World? Yeah. Yeah. But what else? And I was like, I don't know. Like, the villain, we didn't, we touched on Jafar briefly, but like, I didn't, he was very weird and sleazy to me when I was a kid, and I was just like, I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, and then you grew up and you realize it's like, oh, he's the, you know, one of a long line of Orientalist stereotyping. And I'm just like, this is gross. I didn't like Aladdin as a prince because I don't like liars. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> I mean, for me, for me, like, I enjoyed it for Leia Salonga. As a kid, I mm-hmm. was like Leia Salonga. And then we were always big Robin Williams household. Yes. So, and, yes. and I think we should loop back to Robin Williams at a later point because I also think we want to talk about celebrity voice actors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but, you know, so Jeff, when you, you mentioned the 36-year-olds who now have six-year-olds, I'm like, well, it's interesting you know, are they remaking Aladdin in part to try to be like, oh, keep watching our movies. Try to forget that the one that you watched when you were six was pretty racist. And now you don't want to show that to your kid. Oh, I think there's a there's an element of that. Right. Going on for and sure. then but the other side of that is that when you have a movie that's genuinely good, like very few notes, Lion King. Mm-hmm. Why do you need to do a CGI remake Why? of The Lion King? Why do you need do to you really need value? To? I mean, don't get me wrong. Any excuse to get more Beyonce in my life, I will take it. I really love her. Um, thank you. But at the end of the day, like, they could have done anything else. Could you not have just asked her to cover the songs? Right. right. For, like, a special re-release. Yeah. Like, remember when they were... No, because that reminds me. Remember in the mid to late... like early 2000s. I know that's the most complicated way of putting it. Disney kept opening the vault and re-releasing their classics. And every time they opened that vault, I was like, mom, please open your wallet so that we can get these (laughs) DVDs. Which which is what they wanted. Right. I mean, yeah, I was young and impressionable. And also, like, I had not seen Bambi in so long. And I was just like, mom, I need to see this movie. Also has a beautiful score. Did they play that one? Uh, They did not. Also, I was not allowed to watch Bambi as a child because my mother rightly was like, oh, this will traumatize that kid. Oh, fair. Uh, and, (laughs) And she was right. I have just seen not even clips, but like gifts of it. And I'm like, oh, 
even as a grown up, I cannot handle this film. <sighs> I love that movie. So, yeah. um, <laughs> it did traumatize my sister. And so, I, I am kind of interested in Disney as a corporation currently being very fixated on that very that a very ultimately short span of years mm-hmm. of that golden age. Because like when I think the only the only movies that this concert had any music from that weren't that 89 to 94 span Mm -hmm. they did a bit of the scoring from cars which was interesting right of course we all remember the music from cars (laughs) um that goes without saying cinderella and then the princess and the frog which actually the more i think about it the more is like this is another one that's skating by on the score there's a lot of really i think the animation is beautiful i think but like if i was a voodoo practitioner i would be so mad the princess and the frog and I'm going to use this word accurately, is a trigger for me (laughs) because of so many reasons. Like that movie, I'm just going to talk about it. I followed the story for that movie. It came out, I think, in 2009. That sounds right. I heard about it in 2006. So I was in middle school. So remember what following the news was like in 2006. So imagine me. This middle schooler just constantly Googling for updates about this movie, being so excited about this movie, finally getting to watch it. And then 20 minutes into the movie, my princess is a frog. She's a frog. And she doesn't turn back into herself until the last 10 minutes of the movie. Probably closer to five. Now, do I love Princess Tiana? Absolutely. I actually really like Naveen too. Do I love that story? Not necessarily. Do I rewatch it often? Yes. Because I will take what they gave me, but I will be upset about it for the rest of my life. I feel like that. (laughs) Yes, that's it. That's the Disney experience. I'll take what you give me, but I'm going to be mad. I'm going to jump from 2006. Mm -hmm. Disney, uh, ostensibly, finally making a film with a black protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to jump ahead to 2021. Take a deep breath, Roddy. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Soul and how what they have in common is we have a black protagonist. We are now going to put that black protagonist in the body of a frog or a cat for 80% of the duration of the runtime. I'm just like, there's so much to be said yeah. about Disney having black protagonists and having to take them out of their bodies it's to tell so a story. Weird and I will write about that one day. Yeah. And I will come for them. I will come for them. Because Soul does not get the grace from me that the Princess and the Frog did. Right. Because at least at the end of the day, the Princess and the Frog was still about Tiana and her prince, but also like her story plays a huge role in the story. Soul is just like There's this guy getting a shot at a jazz band that he's wanted his whole life. Anyway, he's going to help this soul, this other soul discover themselves. It's not really like, yeah, he doesn't want to die. But anyway, right. He's a mentor now. It's not about him at that point. (laughs) No. And so I cannot give that movie any grace. Well, let's get back to this notion of Disney getting in the way of its own art. Let's open that back up and, and share our thoughts on that. That was what sprung into this episode. Yes. Uh, yeah. And maybe, and maybe we we do dig into that by literally talking more about the movies that don't work for us. Right. So I guess kind of kind of want to like jumpstart this with saying like after the Disney Renaissance, there was this moment in the late. Honestly, I include Tarzan in the Renaissance, so I'm gonna not talk about Tarzan in this particular aspect. But there was this time in the early 2000s where Disney was doing a lot of weird but really cool stuff. And that is when we got Emperor's New Groove, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Treasure Planet. And there's also another movie that nobody talks about. I know Jeff has one, but I might not be saying what he's going to say, which is Dinosaur, which no one ever talks about that movie. But do you remember this one, Jeff? I do. And just for the record, so there's no suspense, I was going to wedge in there Lilo and Stitch. Yes. (gasps) Thank you. Oh my God, yes. So really quick about Dinosaur, literally what it sounds like, Disney did this really groundbreaking at the time thing with CGI, where they did an entire movie with like these 
hyper-realistic dinosaurs that told the story about after a sort of great cataclysm, these dinosaurs, it's almost like the land before time, but they are trying to find essentially an oasis where they can continue to thrive. And I watched that movie as often as I could because Disney literally put it out and pretended like it didn't exist, but it is on Disney Plus now. And while it does not necessarily look like the best CGI in today's standards, then again, we've seen some recent CGI that's been really bad. If you keep in mind when it came out and what it must have been like to watch it when it came out, it is fantastic. And they just don't, like, they did it. It was groundbreaking, in my opinion, and they've just never acknowledged it again. Old people shake fists at cloud. I'm just like, this was one of, I feel like if they actually gave that particular property its due, it could have been one of their biggest things ever. But they just don't make them like that anymore. They don't. Yeah. And I think I'd have to go back and double check this. I think part of the beautiful weirdness era was Disney had two animation studios and they were kind of ignoring one of them. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of like, I don't know, just get it as a movie. I really cannot recommend, dear listeners, highly enough, uh, the, I think it's a, it's like an oral history of the Emperor's New Groove. And I've forgotten what online publication it's in, but it's long and it's incredible. Um, and it's a lot of interviews with the actors, but also like everyone who worked on that film. I learned that, Sting was initially involved. That film was in mm-hmm. production forever because it was originally called The Empire of the Sun. Mm-hmm. And Sting was involved because he wanted a hit the way The Lion King had been a hit for Elton John. Mm-hmm. Um, or the way that uh, Tarzan could be a hit for Phil Collins. Yes. yes. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to <laughs> um, and and eventually, I mean, this thing was just stuck in production. Hell, they, and, and eventually Sting dropped out of it. They never had a final script. So apparently at Disney, you know, they archive all of the final scripts for animated films because they change a lot in production. And when they called the emperor's new groove guys up and said oh give us the final script for, for the archives they're like we don't have one and they were like what do you mean you don't have one and they were like well i mean we can go through and transcribe the movie but so much of it was mm-hmm. putting the actors in a studio mm-hmm. telling them to just go <laughs> and working with what they had from that and it's just fascinating and the th- yeah like the thing i love about emperor's new groove is like what a weird little film, but it's so good. And it's funny. Like, oh, the number of times, pull the lever, Kronk. Wrong oh, lever. Oh my God. Why do we even have that lever? I mean, just. Kronk's theme music. Kronk's theme around. music. His spinach puffed. Oh my and, gosh. And there are voice actors in that who are not unknown. I mean, Eartha Kitt is mm-hmm. a legend. Right. right. I think it's Patrick Warburton That's right. as mm-hmm. Kronk, and he's done plenty of stuff. Yes. John Goodman. Like, recognizable names, but also you don't. You don't listen and go, like, when I watch Frozen, I go, that's Adina Menzel. And it's kind of <laughs> hard for me to think of her as anyone but Adina Menzel. Mm-hmm. Right. I watch Emperor's New Groove knowing it's Eartha Kit, mm-hmm. but I'm like, Azizma. Exactly. Yes. You know? Exactly. Also, spawned an entire generation of kids who squeak at each other and know <laughs> what the other person yes. is saying. Right. I um, completely forgotten I about that. The whole, like, teaching squirrel thing at my sister's and they will respond and we will like basically be reciting those lines you owe me a new acorn <laughs> that was buried in the depths of Sorry. my memory no thank you no. because i think that's such a testament to how good that film that is was one of my little brother's favorite movies mm-hmm. um he's considered non-speaking so he has very limited speech but he calls that movie llama llama so llama llama <laughs> AKA the Emperor's New Groove was a staple in my house. What I was going to say is I'm finding interesting and that this shouldn't be any surprise to me, but, but y'all are about 10 ish years younger mm-hmm. than me. So that 99 to 04 era mm-hmm. is your era. Yeah. I was in the theater as a youngster in 92 yeah. doing the whole thing. That's fair. So 
But I would still say, objectively, even though I was older when I saw mm -hmm. Emperors or Lilo, I even in the moment of being in that theater said, this is better than what I grew up with. <laughs> yeah. Lilo and Stitch. L let's talk about, so I'm going to quickly veer onto Atlantis before, because I want to talk about Lilo and Stitch and Frozen. So, Atlantis is 96, I think. Is it? I thought or is it 99? I it's, can't oh, remember. It is. it is like 90. It's it Sorry. <laughs> none of this will be none of this will be edited out. I'm just using my memory. It's okay. I'm it's going... 2001. Okay. It like I said, it was in that weird time. It's in that yeah. time. So, that movie had a lot of money put into it and it did not make all of its money back if I'm recalling correctly. When we talk about all-star voice cast, Cree Summer, who has voiced everyone's childhood at this point, Michael J. Fox. Why am I for Leonard Nimoy was one of the voices in that movie. Yes, I am so like that had that movie has one of the best voice casts ever. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I watched that movie and I was like, oh my God, that's Leonard Nimoy. Like when you watch it and you listen to him speak as the king of Atlantis, he is the king of Atlantis. And I mean, that's also just speaking to his skill as an actor. But that sets the stage for the entire movie. Like, Michael J. Fox did a fantastic job voicing Milo. And the character design, the diversity of the characters, and their background stories. We can talk about the fact that there is the underlying current of the fact that Milo as a white character does play the role of a white savior mm -hmm. who goes to this ancient society that, you know, there was a flood, essentially, I'm just gonna, and that wiped out like most of their population, as well as pretty much all of their resources. So there's entire generations of Atlanteans who can't read or speak their language, including our main character played by Cree Summer named Kita. Because when she when the flood happened, she was a child and she lost her mother to it. There's a huge so they're like I'm not saying it's a perfect story, but it's also a story about colonialism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because Milo as the white savior is also facing off against the I think he's a colonel or whatever. The character's very obviously like an American military man. Of course. Um, who is just like, we can take these things and make weapons. So let's let's feed off of these people's resources, take literally the thing that's keeping them alive, and let's bring it back up to the surface, make a lot of money. And it's like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> the things that Disney used to just say, right. like I've, so I've actually never seen Newsies, but I've read a lot of um, like, think pieces about Newsies, mm -hmm. and they're like, Disney just put this piece of like pro-union media right. on VHS for children in the late 90s. Yes. Can you imagine them like, doing that now? They, and the thing about it is that when people talk about, so part of the conversation that tends to happen lately is about, you know, oh, I don't want to use the word that they use because they use it wrong, but just essentially like, force-fed inclusivity or like diversity or certain like progressive messaging and it's just like this stuff was not force-fed before quote unquote I don't think it ever is but I was just like this was just the thing mm -hmm. Atlantis was just the story of colonialism right. and you know the effects that it has on this I mean obviously Atlantis is a not actual place depending on who you talk to right. um but the story was full. All of the characters had like actual backgrounds. And, you know, like one of the characters is a doctor whose mother is indigenous and his father is black. And he talks about how difficult it was to become a doctor. It is literally like a two minute portion of the movie, if even that long, when they're all going through their backgrounds. And then that's it. It's just like, yeah, that's him. You try to do that today, people will be up in arms. Right. And it's just like, what happened? And I think it's once again, Disney, the corporation getting in the way of its art, because even I noticed that the quality of the storytelling, they will try to do this story today. I'm sure that they've actually done this story again today, but I know that the quality of it 
it's probably not going to be as good as the quality of Atlantis the Lost Empire, which almost no one talks about. Well, no, it's gotten sort of a cult following now. But like, it's just not as good as it used to be. <sighs> well, that was also an attempt of Disney to reach 12 to 15 year olds. Yes. With that, the tone of that movie. Mm-hmm. And they've, I think they've always kind of banged their head against the wall. Prince of Egypt may be also appealing to a 10 and up crowd because it's a little more, a lot more serious. Well, and I think that that's, if we're going to talk about Disney struggling with certain age range audiences, I feel like the Prince of Egypt, which is DreamWorks, is one of my favorite films, hands down, top five, possibly top three. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's a film that I loved when I was, you know, Seven, it's a film that I loved when I was 12. It's a film that I love now that I'm grown. Mm -hmm. And banging their head against the wall at Jeff is, I think, exactly the right (laughs) phrase to use because you see it in something like Hunchback. I think (laughs) Hunchback of Notre Dame has, which is uh, music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Stephen Schwartz, uh, has the best music in a Disney film, hands Mm -hmm. down. Certainly, in my opinion, the best villain song. Um, There is a stage version that draws that that keeps the music from the film draws a lot more on the plot line of the novel mm-hmm. and i think is ultimately much more successful because they said they had to have talking gargoyles in the film mm-hmm. and why would you need to do that you could have said oh we're making a film for the high school crowd right and one of the joys of the prince of egypt is i watch it and i'm like animation is not necessarily a children's medium like this is this is like to me the people who made prince of egypt just set out to make a good movie right that's something that dreamworks did a lot more often yeah than disney because dreamworks also gave us shrek yep. not necessarily all of its sequels we don't need to get into that though shrek 2 is an amazing sequel they also gave us chicken run nobody really talks about that movie um that was in retrospect, hilarious. I haven't watched it in a long time, so I can't entirely like speak to it today. But DreamWorks was somehow filling the gap that Disney just could not. Um, and I think also it's because DreamWorks trusted the medium and its audience. Like you said, Gargoyles. Why were they there? Why were they there? And well, and Disney part of the reason does that with so much stuff like yeah. Hercules, for example. Yeah. <laughs> My mom hates The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but she also dislikes Hercules very mm. strongly. That is a movie that survives off of its soundtrack. Yep. Almost exclusively, which I know we're going to talk about. We were planning to also touch on that. Yeah. But that's because Disney, once again, was just like, huh, Greek mythology. Hmm. Do we want to tell this children that Zeus? <laughs> <laughs> what if we, what if we <laughs> butchered it? What if? Yeah, I don't even need to finish that sentence. Do we want to tell the children that Zeus? Zeus. And then it's like, or could we put Hades, who is literally just minding his business 90% of the time, can we just actually put him in this and pretend like Hera and Zeus had a happy marriage and we're just going to... We're going to mix so much stuff up. We're going to say that Hercules happened after Achilles. Who... Well, I don't. Sorry, I don't <laughs> think that they. About Greek yes. Mythology. As I was, I was talking to Mary Graham off mic. I think that the point of Hercules is to be meta and self-referential. There are, I think that they don't they make a joke about the hero training song. They just make a lot yes. of like self-aware jokes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that was all that movie means to me to this day. I mean, I've rewatched. Is Hercules. Disney saying, hey? Sorry about Hunchback and Pocahontas. <laughs> We're going to give you something. If only they actually did any useful no, sort of apologizing no, for Pocahontas. No, they did not. No, no. they didn't. Um, but. While we're talking about colonialism, though, if we haven't moved too far away from that in Atlantis, is this when we want to talk about Tarzan? Um. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is why this is my defense of the movie Tarzan, which take the word defense very loosely. But Jeff posited Um, that Tarzan's saving grace is its soundtrack. And I get that because 
I will turn that movie on just to listen to its soundtrack. And its animation. There are sequences and, where he's swinging around yes. and it is like flat out Spider-Man. Yeah. So one thing I was telling Jeff, and this is another cool behind the scenes thing, which is that they studied like surfers and skateboarders to specifically figure out how he would move along the trees and what his body would look like. Like They really tried. If you've ever read one of the Tarzan books, there's this thing called racism and <laughs> it is prevalent in those books because are those early 1900s yeah which sure is an era of british literature especially pulp literature and that era is subtitled yikes yes and in the tarzan books it is not simply that he is you know just being raised by gorillas there's also tribes of indigenous african peoples because i don't remember where particularly charizan is supposed to take place that are i'm very... not sure the author did either yeah they are a mess they're gross they're disgusting that's the only way i can put that my defense of the movie tarzan is that that movie was just like what if he's literally just on you know this place like this island this whatever with just just gorillas and the other animals like his parents are dead because Disney and that's it and you don't see any other people until these other people come here and by doing that you actually got this really heartfelt like story of Tarzan with the apes and like the relationships and you know the conflicts there without having to like shoehorn in what could have potentially been Disney's most racist movie. And I'm just like, so that allows me to enjoy that a lot more because it also does clearly delineate, like this is Tarzan and the apes. And then these are the humans Mm -hmm. that show up and mess things up. And this is the repercussions of humans actually being in the story and what it means. It's like, oh, cool thanks exactly. <laughs> well and but speaking to your comment about the soundtrack i do have to say uh as someone who's not on tiktok uh i still do watch them from time to time they're impossible to escape uh, possibly my favorite tiktok of all time is a guy who's pretending to be a disney producer listening to the phil collins soundtrack while he's like in the studio and this guy is just like all right so let's let's hear what phil collins has put together and he starts listening to strangers like me and he's like oh this is good this is really good this is too good this is too good, right? It's too good. Hey, Phil, Phil, does he know this is a movie about a guy raised by monkeys? <laughs> it's too good, right? It's too good. And, and I mean, I'm, this has been a pale imitation because a lot of, you know, it's a really funny guy doing the acting and a lot of but the joy is so in his good. emotion, like on his face. But it's just, whenever I'm sad, I go watch that TikTok because it's yeah. like, it's too good, right? It's too good. Like, you'll be in my heart. Is still to this day like one of the best parent child songs ever. I'm gonna get emotional thinking about that song. Well, since we're crying about family, let's talk about Ohana, which means family, and family means no one gets left behind. It's such a good movie, and even seeing it as a cynical, possibly cynical, I'm too big for this 18 year old, Mm -hmm. I fell head over heels for that movie. And I think that part of it was that. The grown-up characters are so uh, authentic and really likable. There's just something about them. And And just like, oh my god, everything, like, the conflicts in that movie are so real. Are so real. And I think that really Disney is at its best when it's doing, like, for for me as a child, Gaston was always one of the scariest villains because I was like, well, that's not... It's, he's not scary because he's right. got magic like Maleficent or something like that. He's just mean. Right. Um, and with Lilo and Stitch, it's like you have two girls who've lost their parents in like a weather event, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nani is trying to like beat CPS away with a stick because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to lose her little sister. And Right. And she's 18-ish, 20-ish. Ish, yeah, yeah. Like like old enough, I don't, but struggling. I For some reason, my mind is saying she's like 19. I don't know if that was just what I decided when I was a child. Yeah. My brain was like, this is canon. But right. yeah. yeah. Well, I think she very, would have to be at her majority anyway yeah. to have any kind of legal custody yeah. of her sister to possibly lose, right. which is part of the problem. And then you have, you know, I, I can't remember if this was deleted from the final draft of the film but one of the reasons Lilo takes pictures of tourists is because tourists are always taking pictures of her as an indigenous Hawaiian and 
like I think that was think more explicit took, in an early draft. Yeah, I think they took um, that out. Which but, like bummer, but right. it's the, the like the the othering gaze. And it's just such a love letter to weird little girls. Yes. Especially weird little girls with big sisters that are slightly more normal than they are. I'm not projecting. Um. I, well, I mean, what I found so endearing is that Nani is... That movie, to me, really showed how much of a struggle it was for her. And, like, she is technically... Uh, she's kind of a mess in the early sequences. Mm-hmm. But the circumstances. I was recently talking about Lilo and Stitch with some friends. Um, just, like, in a joking matter, mm-hmm. manner. Because um, there's this little girl in the movie named Myrtle who is bullying Lilo as often as possible. And there is one moment where Lilo just snaps. I don't publicly condone violence. However, it was so gratifying as a child to just see not necessarily violence be embraced, but like actually it's like acknowledged like you're being bullied. She's being bullied mm-hmm. and she's going to, she can only take so much. Whereas like, I feel like a lot of kids see that or like will say, okay, well, obviously these are the venues that you take, but you also see like that happening and like most of the adults around her not really doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. And once again, not condoning violence in any way, but it was just like, it felt really real to me in that moment where it was just like, oh, Disney is actually like not going to just skirt past these little things. Like as adults, you watch that scene and you'll laugh at it. But like as a little kid, I was just like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, thanks. Mm-hmm. No, it's not right. Yes, Lilo is punished for it. But like, yeah, thanks. And I actually can't watch that movie as much now because it it just it's too much for my puny adult emotions like child me could handle it but adult me cannot handle it because it's too it's yeah i don't want to say it's too real as if that's a criticism it's just it's so it's such a genuine movie when you watch that with your adult brain on and you're like because as a kid i don't i remember being like girl and her alien friend Mm -hmm. is he what is going to happen to the alien friend and as an adult, I'm like, dear Lord, do not let CPS take that child away from her sister. Like, Right. Um. And there was a conversation that happened recently on the internet about Disney. And this is an issue that I have with this movie in general and the way that Disney talked about it, which was the movie Frozen and how it was sort of exalted as being about real sibling relationships oh. and how it was also Disney's first queen Please know that while I am not doing quotation marks, I am saying quotation marks because Atlantis the Lost Empire has Disney's first queen. Lilo and Stitch has Disney's most genuine sibling relationship. What are we doing? Right. Why are we lying? Well, that's that's <laughs> that goes back to the DSO and Disney trying to control the narrative of don't look at this, look at this right. or remember this don't remember dinosaur etc oh and you better believe that they closed out with a long long sweep from frozen yes which honestly so when i watched frozen um because i still went to go see you know children's movies and everything because i know who i am as a person Mm -hmm. same my first watch experience was a lot of fun i saw it with some friends i was suitably shocked by the twist in that movie because i am a gullible person in general so every twist is going to catch me off Mm -hmm. guard Mm -hmm. Um, and then I rewatched it and I was just like, oh, let it go. That's it. That's all they got. That's all that movie has. Yeah. They have Jonathan Groff in that movie and they, they give have... him the most piddling little song. But it's because they realized they'd gotten Jonathan Groff and not let him sing. And they yeah. were like, how can we, we can't justify that. We, we... got to give him something, which like, and, and that's a, another example of like, what a cast you had. And mm-hmm. and even though I would actually say of all of them, Jonathan Groff is the one that I don't go, I can only hear Jonathan Groff. Right. Yes. You know, I'm like, who is that? Oh, it's Jonathan Groff. Right. That's why he sounds familiar. Yeah. I mean, much, much ink could be spilled on Frozen. Much right. ink has been spilled on Frozen. Right. Um, and I think that's another example of 
Disney's sort of trying to get a pass by being super mm-hmm. kind of set, like meta. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not in the same vein as Hercules, you know, but the whole like, oh, you can't marry a guy you just met. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to turn out to be the villain. Right. right. Um, but yeah, I like, I have very similar feelings about Frozen. Sometimes I wonder how much of that has to do with the cultural saturation. Mm-hmm. Um but like probably a lot because when you have a conglomerate that is this enormous and this pervasive, mm-hmm. it is really difficult to evaluate, certainly now, their current pieces of media from their practices as a corporation. Right. Also, I get very salty about Frozen literally for that reason because um, like I don't want to talk about all of Disney's things that they have going on, but when they do things with their like l- large cast of characters and princesses for o- over the years... Every single time they do something with Tiana, it is like there has to be some sort of uproar to get things fixed, like the like, you know, whitewashing and mm-hmm. Wreck-It Ralph and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it often feels like the things that they do with her character are an afterthought, whereas like Anna and Elsa... Oh my God, they get it all. <laughs> like, they get everything. And... Once again, just me being salty. I mean, I am an adult. Like, I'm not a child. So, like, I'm sure there's someone out there that's just like, but you're grown. And it's like, I am. But you notice these things because the children in my life also consume this media. And they notice it, too. And while you might not have to explain it to them, I do. I think, like, because I am not... I really don't consider myself a Disney fan. I have no interest Mm -mm. in going to the theme parks. I have no... You know, I don't I don't care about the slag or the merch or, or any of that. However, that's such a good point, Roddy, is that like in many cases, especially if you have children in your life, you can't escape it. Right. And so we might as well talk about it. Right. And first of all, it's never too early to start literary criticism. <laughs> yes. I mean, legitimately, I, I do the lower elementary book club here, yes. which you can start when you are in kindergarten. Right. And we talk quite intelligently about picture books. I have some great kids in that book club. Right. And um Yeah, you just can't not say anything, I think. I'm going to switch gears and get to uh, a little bit more of the Pixar situation. Oh, yes. Uh, Turning red. Right. We can can talk about that. Um, I still haven't watched it yet. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Before we run out of time, I just want to talk about what is my favorite Disney movie. And it isn't technically Disney. I don't know where those lines cross, mm-hmm. but I know I that... I mean, there's got to be a date when one of them got acquired. Right. And yeah. Pixar breaks off at some point. Yeah. But Disney and, and Pixar are still intertwined when a little film called Ratatouille comes out. <gasps> yes. Uh, which defies all of the stereotypes that I think that a lot of Disney films mm-hmm. fall into. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, who is that movie for? The fact that I don't really have a firm answer for you mm-hmm. delights me. Yeah. Uh, because it's such a reverential love letter to just mm. foodies. Okay, Jeff, I'm sorry. You can look, yes. Just like cooking, yeah. that movie is for everyone. Okay. Exactly. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit about when I when I experienced that movie. I was just getting into the realm of journalism and becoming uh, a music critic. Mm-hmm. Capital C. I was writing reviews for mm-hmm. albums or concerts mm-hmm. or films. I was now an art critic, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when he gives his monologue at the end about what it means to be a critic, mm-hmm. I've got goosebumps right now yeah, just trying so to I. remember it. Yeah. Uh, and when Peter uh, Lawrence of Arabia, O'Toole? Peter, Peter O'Toole, yes. says anyone can cook, it means so much and has... It just speaks volumes. Now, I'm gonna cry about that movie. I need to talk about it for too long. But now, now the now it's a it's a it's an anthropomorphic animal who talks. Yes, that's Disney. The human protagonist is goofy, very goofy for the first half, but then kind of levels out a little bit. But it's literally an almost like two hour, which is a grown up runtime movie about working in a kitchen, and. Embracing your talents and your passions. It's beautiful. Not to mention that at the end, it technically is not a happy ending. Technically. Because mm-hmm. they get kicked out of that restaurant. They have to open a smaller restaurant. And Peter O'Toole, the critic, basically has to retire. Mm-hmm. And yet you still see them all 
happy. Mm-hmm. Yes. In their in what they oh but man. you say that and it's just like I have yet to have met a child who does not love that movie. And I I, I actually think that it's even. From what I can remember of it, because like they seem pretty happy in that smaller restaurant, and it's, a, so and, and it's something that's actually like, again, can you believe there was an era when Disney just put this out there? It was such a yeah, it's... which is that like actually you don't need to constantly be leveling up, right? In... Sometimes what you need is a smaller, quieter life, right? And in... that is a happy thing. The ride off into the sunset ending of that movie is that the protagonists become as famous as Gaston, and they own the fancy restaurant, and obviously. Untold riches, right? Right. And fame and celebrity. Right. No, they just have a quiet little existence. Yeah. yeah. So and making I mean, really good food that makes people popular. happy. You see the line of people sure. out the door. Yeah. But it's not. It's under their own terms. Though. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and there's no existential dread. Hello, Toy Story 3 and Inside no. Out. Oh, God. Uh, and it's not like overly intellectualized, I don't think. So another movie that I feel like fits this vein that is also Pixar is also the movie that radicalized a generation and it is called A Bug's Life. Oh, man. Um, I never even saw A Bug's Life all the way through, but I know that there's more of them than there, more of us than there are of them. Yes. That's all. Honestly, that's all that needs to be said about yeah. that movie. That <laughs> Pixar. Which again, my goodness. Let's, let's tie this in. Um, and of course, we'll do a Disney part two, but let's tie this in is that so Bugs Life for me, uh, coming in when it did and being as old as I was, I was like, oh, this movie has a protagonist that's voiced by the Canadian comedian David Foley from Kids in the Hall. <laughs> that's so random. Uh, that isn't a Robin Williams move or an Adina Menzel move. Uh, that's a Patton Oswalt move. I mm-hmm. love that. So the, the celebrity thing. I couldn't um, even how, tell you who voiced anyone in a bug's so life. So Dave Foley. Anyway, um, <laughs> but to the point of the, uh, is it like a distraction? Yes. Um, the the yes. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> in the post Robin Williams era, where they are booking celebrity A to act as as celebrity A is known to act in movie B. Right, so. because the problem is that you can't Robin Williams. Was Robin Williams exactly? You right. can't get anyone to just, just do stop what... expecting everyone to because be Robin when Williams. I watch Aladdin, I know it's Robin Williams, but I see genie. Sure, but and... but to an extent, you know, James Woods is being James Woods when he's being Hades, right? And and that isn't Hades, and that's like such a diversion from the character. It's literally celebritifying. Yes. Character. And, I mean, and you know, I watched Frozen, be... and I go, "What's Eleanor Shellstrop doing here?" Right. <laughs> And I mean, to be fair, ironically, when I watch Hercules, I don't think about James Woods. I think about Rip Torn as oh, yeah. uh, Zeus. I'm just like, what is he doing? Or Danny DeVito. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Danny DeVito for me. And that's the that's one of the big, big problems with Hunchback is that they were like, we need Jason Alexander as one of these gargoyles. Right. And he is just being. And I think Whoopi. Am I wrong? That's a, She's a, one of the hyenas in The Lion King. Oh, sorry. She's yeah. in The Lion King. Yeah. But, you can watch The Lion King and not think about her. It's right. Not in a bad way, but like, that's another movie. Yeah. That cast. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's James Earl Jones, but it's not me going, oh, it's James Earl Jones because he always plays that guy. It's me going, it's funny that Mufasa and Darth Vader have the same voice. But right. even then, like, that's like, with, I watched Star Wars years and years after I watched mm-hmm. Lion King and my mother had to go, you know, that's Mufasa, right? right? And I was like, oh, no, I did not actually. Right. Um, Another side tangent is that Lion King works because none of those characters are on screen for too long. Mm-mm. They don't yeah. overstay their welcome. It's true. If anyone overstays his welcome, it's Matthew Broderick. Um, but so you don't get sick of them. Wait. Yeah. So. You can't just well, throw that out there. And I think, I think another, I mean, just to bring it back to Prince of Egypt's being better than almost everything, is that the prince, the cast for the Prince of Egypt is just star after star. Ray Fiennes, I believe. Ray Fiennes as Ramesses. And listen, I, there are many things that I think can and should be said about that. They do a beautiful job with the animation of the Egyptians in the Prince of Egypt. And basically nobody who voices an Egyptian is mm-hmm. African of African descent at all. So there's, there's part of me that's like, do I, are there things that can be said about Ray Fiennes casting in that role? There are. I also think he does a really good you job. Know, that's one of the and- movies where like, 
people so like people will show like the cast of the lion king yeah and people will be like mm-hmm. but people have shown the cast of the prince of egypt and people are like, mm-hmm. like okay like i get it yeah but and i'm not saying that's going to be everyone's opinion but that's yeah. definitely a movie where i was just like look they did such a good job I almost used a profanity but (laughs) I will have to say as we uh, wrap up part one of this uh, and you know uh, uh, perfunctorily get back to our library duties here at the building uh, is that what what I seem to see is that Disney will is not afraid to experiment every once in a while Mm -hmm. but when that does not yield 400 million dollars it's abandoned i don't think they're gonna we're gonna see them experiment like outside of pixar oh they solved the equation of how do we reach 13 year olds by star wars how do we reach 17 year olds by marvel Mm -hmm. yeah so rather than make atlantis again we're just gonna fund marvel or we're gonna do the star wars which just breaks my heart because i i miss the era of just a solid standalone animated film and disney's not the only place to go for that of course um but it's just i mean they're not even doing 2d animation anymore i know which breaks my heart and that is the thing is that disney when it has experimented and when disney has has thought that it has failed it created art that the three of us really connected with yeah mm-hmm. whether it was the and it was just happened to be that the it was the they're more under the radar abandoned experiments it doesn't it's still connected with us so much yeah you, you had it disney and you blew it yeah <sighs> i'm gonna email them this episode no one's gonna listen to it but i just need them to know <laughs> we've got your number well we'll keep the conversation going because uh, <laughs> i feel like there's still more to be said uh but that'll do it for this latest episode of a little too quiet uh and it's brought to you by the friends of the ferndale library thanks for joining us roddy this was an emotional frustrating episode but yeah it's all right mary graham (laughs) thanks for joining us always a pleasure and uh if you want to support this podcast go to ferndalefriends.org and of course we've got a shout out john duffy gives us the intro and outro music please remember to rate review and subscribe to us and please tell your friends about us uh, if you have thoughts to share about Disney, you can email us at podcast at FADL.org. And we'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. I was really fighting the temptation to make a Disney pun. I don't think I will. They don't deserve it from you today.